Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's so much to discuss in the Parsha, in the world. It's Hanukkah, there's a war, and there's, culturally speaking, a, a war going on in, in America right now in terms of understanding moral clarity. And of course, the presidents of the universities of MIT and University of Pennsylvania and Harvard testified before Congress, and they couldn't answer the question, is calling for genocide considered bullying? And their answer infamously, infamously, this will live on, believe me, this will live on. Their answer was, it depends on the context. And this, I think, was a miraculous moment. I actually think that this was a supernatural moment. And let me tell you what I mean by that. It says in the Talmud that in the end of days, the non-Jews are going to say to God, if we had had a Moses, we also would have been like the Jewish people. And God is going to say back to them, this is in the Talmud, God is going to say back to them, I gave you Bilaam. So Bilaam was a very, very great prophet, not, not as great as Moshe, because no one, even among the Jewish prophets, even including Mashiach, will be considered as great as Moshe in terms of prophecy. Mashiach will be able to do things that Moshe didn't do, but on the level of prophecy, Moshe is considered the greatest prophet ever, for all time. Okay, nonetheless, Bilaam was very great. But Bilaam was incredibly arrogant, in addition to incredibly corrupt, but he was also incredibly arrogant. And so I heard Reb Shlomo say one time that this is one of the reasons why God made Bilaam's donkey speak. Because God was sending a message to Bilaam, you think you're such a big deal because you're saying my words? I can make a donkey say my words. Right? So with that in mind, can you imagine you've got three of the smartest people in the world in front of Congress and they can't answer a simple yes or no question? Like that is a supernatural event. That is a supernatural event. And that that clip of their utter confusion, which shines a light on all of the confusion going on, should be broadcast around the world and go viral around the world. I, I saw something. I, I wish I could tell you where I saw that, but it, it seemed to be a credible source. That, you know, you have views and you have impressions. I don't know exactly the difference between a view and an impression. But anyway, I think that I saw that this got something like a billion impressions. Or perhaps it was a billion views. And this was a couple of days after the testimony. In other words, it, it actually was seen all over the world. It really was. So this is really interesting. And who would have thought that because Hamas massacres people on October 7th, the president of the University of Pennsylvania loses her job in America and how interconnected everything is. And I think that this is what, what a good reminder is for us. Remember, it says that each person is a microcosm of the universe, which is one of the great empowering teachings of Torah, is that each one of us has five levels to our soul. 
Some of those levels are inside you, and then some of them are outside of you. But the highest aspects of your soul go all the way up to the Kisei covet to the throne of glory. Which means that each person, not only don't you end at the top of your head, that you are like this amazing pillar that goes all the way up through dimensions to the throne of glory. Each person straddles the universe. Which means that whatever you're doing, you are literally affecting the entire universe because you yourself are straddling the universe. So sometimes you see actual examples of how interconnected we are and how great our influence is. So let's talk about success for a moment. So let me just tell you a story that happened to me. I was at the mikvah one time, this was a few years ago, and when I got out, someone had stolen my clothes. <laughs> and. I'm not imagining that, you know, because it's a small room and there are a few hooks and my clothes were gone. I, I did not have my clothes. So how do you think I reacted? <laughs> it was Arab Shabbos also. I had to get home for Shabbos. So I remembered a story that Reb Shlomo told, and it, it's a long story, and I, I don't remember all the details, but I do remember the end part. It, it's about a rich man who lost his money. And then one thing after another happens to him. And then finally he goes to the mikvah and his clothes get stolen. <laughs> and the way he reacts is he jumps up and he starts dancing. People think that he's lost his mind. Why is he happy? And he said, because, you know, a person's mazel, their kind of their destiny, their, their fate is kind of, is like a wheel. And he felt at that moment that he couldn't go any lower. <laughs> And therefore, he was thrilled because he could only go up from that moment. So I thought to myself, I remembered that story and I got so happy. <laughs> so I'm just sitting there like really happy, right? Anyway, what happened? What happened was, it's a sad story. Someone got bad news, like really bad news. I don't know what happened exactly, but he told me it was really bad news. And he ran from the mikvah and grabbed his clothes off the hook and did it so quickly that he didn't realize that he was taking mine with him. And he ran home. And when he got home, he realized that he had taken someone else's clothes. And, you know, under those circumstances, and it's about to be Shabbos and everything like that, to his great credit, he went back and, and returned my clothes. So I want to go more deeply into this idea of success. So Yosef had Sadiq is called successful two times in this Parsha. And if you think about it, Yosef is arguably the most successful person that ever lived. He's one of the holiest people that ever lived. He's one of the most forgiving people that ever lived. And he literally saved the entire world from starvation. And he ran one of the greatest empires to this day. So, it's hard to think of someone who is greater than Yosef. So when does the Torah call Yosef successful? It uses this word, matzliach, which means successful. The first time it uses it is after his brothers sell him into slavery, which is a little bit confusing. Like, why would you be called a success after you've been sold into slavery? 
The second time it uses it is after he gets thrown into prison for a crime he doesn't commit. So this is somewhat baffling. We just enumerated all of his amazing accomplishments. This is when he's called successful. Perhaps we can give the following definition of true success, which is that Yosef stayed connected to God in fullness, no matter what situation he was put into, even under the most negative of circumstances. Sold into slavery, thrown wrongfully into prison in Egypt. Like, I don't even want to be in prison in America. I don't even know what an Egyptian prison looked like, right? And Yosef remained whole and connected to God no matter what his outside circumstances were. And to me, this is the greatest definition of success. So I had a friend who was becoming observant. He wasn't keeping Shabbos yet, but he was on, on the road to. And he had a lot of questions. And he was able to meet with Rav Noach Weinberg, Oliver Shalom, the founder of Asia Tour in Jerusalem. He was able to get a lunch appointment with him in America. And, and I, I've never stopped thinking about this since he told me this, like probably 20 years ago. Like of all the things to tell someone who's struggling with keeping Shabbos, I'll give you two answers by two great people. I'll tell you what Rev Noach said, and I'll tell you another time what Rev Shlomo said to someone else. Both answers that I would never imagine giving, okay? Because they're so good. So he said, he said to him, while you're in this period of when you're asking questions, make sure that you define your terms. And what he meant by that was things like, everybody wants to be a success. In America, people will kill themselves over being a success. And yet, if you ask them to define what is a success, most people can't give you a clear, intelligent answer. What the definition of success is. And yet, they're dying to be successes. So we just gave a definition, which I think is an awesome definition, by the way, and it's really the Torah's definition, to remain connected to God in fullness no matter what the situations are in your life. To me, that's an awesome definition of success. Now, how about defining peace? Reb Shlomo said one time that when people talk about shalom bias, which means peace in the home, peace between man and wife, that what most people mean when they say shalom bias is a ceasefire. I'm not yelling at you and you're not yelling at me. Like, we'll call that shalom bias. He said, that's not shalom bias. Shalom bias is the Shekhinah is in your home. One of my favorite, favorite stories ever. Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, one of the great poskim, halachic deciders of the last generation, he famously had shalom bias with his wife. And he was like an old man on something like his 80s or whatever it was. And he, was, he happened to be coming into his home with uh, one of his students was there. And before he's entering his home, he's straightening his beard. He's making sure that, that his tie is straight. And the, the student was like, you've been married to this woman for like... Something like decades. So you're like primping before you, you go in to see her. 
And, and he said back to him, you don't understand. He says, we have this blessing of Shalom Bayis in our home, which means I am about to stand in front of the Shekhinah. Different, different way of going through life. So defining our terms. We all want these like buzzwords as like achievements to enwrap ourselves with when we are viewed by other people, whatever our intention is. But how about we actually figure out what it is that we want and try harder to actually get it in a purer way? How about that as just a life strategy? So my friend defined his terms and he's in a really good place right now. I'll tell you just a related story. There was someone in our community here in the Pico Robertson area in Los Angeles, a brilliantly talented singer, like crazy talented, like, like off the charts. You'd hear him singing, you'd be like, what? This guy's amazing, very professional. Now, you know, as a musician, that's a, that's a tough field. It's tough to get a job pretty much always, you know? So he had just gotten an offer to be on a national Broadway theatrical tour. So in other words, it was one of these big plays like Wicked or whatever it was. It wasn't Wicked, but, but something like that. They're, they're always touring around the country. And if you can get a gig on one of those things, that's, that's, that's a good job. Unfortunately, it meant that he would have to work on Shabbos. And he was just starting. He was just starting to keep Shabbos. So he came up to me and he said, what should I do? And I said, what are you asking me for? Reb Shlomo's in town. Ask Reb Shlomo. So he went and he asked him and listen to what Reb Shlomo said. Again, an answer that I would never think to give. Brilliant answer. He said to him, this is incredible. He said, have you ever thought that someone was your soulmate and then it turns out that they weren't? That's what he said. So that's deep, but at least on the surface level, he was referring to this job. Like, because on some level, this was the greatest job that the guy could have gotten and he was being offered it. So he probably felt like, wow, this is my soulmate, metaphorically. But it wasn't. And you know what? He didn't take the job. He didn't take the job. What, what is our success? So we have individual things that we have to do. Like Rib Shlomo says that this world is like a big hospital clinic. Everyone who's in this world basically is here to fix something because we believe in reincarnation. So all of us are basically here to fix some aspect of our soul. So you've got the notion of success on the individual level. Can I fix my soul during my lifetime? And by the way, how, how do you do that? How do you do that? So that's a whole subject in itself, but let me just give you one answer. One answer is look at those things that are hardest for you to do. And there's a good chance that that's where your soul fixing lies. And the, the spiritual logic behind that is actually, I think, very compelling. Even though it's nothing any of us want to hear, all of us want to do the things that we're good at, not the things that we're bad at. 
And especially when the stakes are so high, then it makes it even more complicated. So I'm not pretending I'm telling you an easy piece of information right now. But at least if I explain it, maybe it'll go down a little bit better, okay? Which is that if we've been here many lifetimes before, the things that are easy for us right now are things that we accomplished in previous lifetimes. That's why they're easy for us right now. The stuff that's difficult is the stuff that we haven't accomplished yet. That's why it's difficult. Isn't that interesting? I think that's really interesting. But actually, there's a kind of a bucket of hope in that, which is that that meant that in a previous lifetime, there was something very hard for me, and I accomplished it, which is why it's not hard for me today. Because you look at your friends around you, and there's some things that it's sort of like, you feel bad that they're struggling with that particular area. But for you, it's like, thank God, it's not an issue. But you know what? It probably was an issue at some point, and you probably just tackled it. You were able to just say, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to allow this to be an issue in my life anymore. So in other words, maybe the work still needs to be done since we're here right now and we all have our issues. But the fact that we're here and that's our issue means that we've been successful making other things not our issue in the past. Which means that just like we did it before, we can do it again. So, so that's, that's the idea there. But that's on an individual level. Remember, Rib Shlomo, one of his classic teachings, I love it so much. You know, we say that sometimes you've got a great question, but you don't have a great answer. And other times you have a great answer, but you don't have a great question. So I was saying on Shabbos that Shabbos is the best answer. And when you have Shabbos, all the questions go away. But let me tell you what Reb Shlomo said, because Reb Shlomo gave an example, in my mind, of a great question followed by a great answer. Okay? Here's the great question. We know at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai, all the souls of everyone Jewish who is alive or who would ever be Jewish, all the souls were present at Mount Sinai and received the Torah. Right? So whether you were alive at the time or not, you were there. We also learn in the Talmud that in, while we're in our mother's stomach that we learn the Torah. So Reb Shlomo's question is the following. If we already got the Torah at Mount Sinai, why do we have to get it, get it again in our mother's stomach? Very good question. Now, he's got a great answer, too. Here, here's the answer. The answer is that every single person that remember. We're, we're one soul. All of us are one soul. So we have our individual mission and we have our national mission. At Mount Sinai, we got our national mission. In our mother's soul, in our mother's stomach, we get taught what we individually have to accomplish in this world. Right? Because... And I think that the war that's going on right now is, is really making us feel this not abstractly anymore, but in a very palpable way, that we really are one family and really are one people. 
And that a person can't, if you, you know, we're so into this idea of realizing our potential for, for good reason. We, we should be into that. But you can't realize your potential on an individual level. In other words, the only way that you can fully realize your potential is by being a member of a community and your individual work. Your community work and your individual work. Because both of those dynamics are expressions of your true soul and your true self. So to the extent that we think that it's sort of like me and all of the community stuff or national stuff is extra credit, that's a fantasy. It's a fantasy that borders on arrogance, basically. It's not. This is, you know, when you go into a room full of people, that's also you. So we talked about the idea of fixing our own souls. But what about fixing, what is our national mission? So if we want to talk about success, so what is our national mission? Our national mission is to bring Mashiach. That's our national mission. So in other words, when before God created the world, God had a vision for a world without war, a world without hunger, a world without hatred. That's, that's what God is in the process of creating right now. God never finished creating the world. He hasn't finished creating the world. This is the mistake that everybody makes. Everybody thinks that, how is the world so messed up if there's a God? He made a world, and now the world is so broken and messed up. God never finished creating the world. And I, I, I can't say it enough. I can't say it enough. What Reb Shlomo says about the Garden of Eden, everybody thinks that the Garden of Eden was a cosmic spa, and we blew it. And Reb Shlomo says that the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? It's proof that the world was never finished. And then he created us, and he gave us the tools to finish the world, which is the Torah and the mitzvahs. Those are our tools for, create, for finishing the world with God. So with that in mind, I want to zero in on something that I found this Shabbos that you know, blew my mind. How do we get to the end? We talk about the end of days. How do we get to the end? So the Parsha begins by saying, Ele todos Yaakov Yosef. So the, the commentators make a very, very big deal about the fact that the word Yaakov goes right into the word Yosef. Yaakov Yosef. And, you know, in, in many ways, Yosef really was the firstborn. As much as we think of Ruvain as the firstborn, and, and Ruvain was the firstborn, by the way, but if you, if you think that Yaakov's intention really was to marry Rachel, and the firstborn between Yaakov and Rachel was Yosef, then in many ways Yosef really was that firstborn that, that Yaakov had in mind. So this idea of Yaakov to Yosef is, is very, very strong. So you say, well, wait a second. You want to say then that we have our Avos, our holy fathers, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and then maybe it should go to Yosef? What about Yehuda? 
Yehuda is the progenitor of the messianic line. Like, shouldn't he be the fourth? And maybe a, a proof that Yehuda should be the fourth is the fact when we talk about the Merkava, the four wheels of the chariot, it's Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and David Melech. And the Magalia Muko says that the name Yehuda, the way it's spelled, it's with the letters Yudke Vavke and the letter Dalit. So the, the, the Magalia Muko says the letter Dalit within the name of Yehuda stands for David Melech, because there you see the messianic line. So Reb Shlomo then gives an amazing teaching that I heard him say many times personally. He, Reb Shlomo loved this teaching. Which is, who do you think Mashiach is descended from? The person who never made a mistake or the person who made, a mis who made mistakes and fixed them? So if you ask me, I would say the person who never made a mistake. Right? That's Yosef Atzadik. And it's, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. You know, you talk about every once in a while you get a window into something. Like this window into Torah, this window into Jewish thought, I think is just thrilling. And that's that Mashiach comes from the one who made mistakes and fixed them. Not the perfect one. That is amazing. That is amazing. Because it's not what you think. You know, I say it every year because I think it's such a strong teaching and we got to know it. The, the Gomorrah doesn't give so many, not that I've been through the whole Gomorrah, by the way, but the Gomorrah doesn't give so many gematrias. But this gematria is from the Gomorrah, okay, from the Talmud, which is, you know, everybody knows that there are 365 days in the year. So the Gemara says the, the gematria for the word hasatan, meaning the, the heavenly accuser, right? Hasatan, that that's gematria 364. Isn't that interesting? The 365 days of the year, and hasatan, the accusing angel, is gematria 364. The sages learn out from that that there's one day when there is no heavenly accuser, and that day is Yom Kippur. Okay? Now, let's put that together with another teaching. One of my favorite things in the Torah, and you really only appreciate a teaching like this if you know that every single letter in the Torah is from Hashem, is that when it goes through the days of creation, it says Yom Echad, which means one day. And then it says, Yom Sheni, second day. Yom Shlishi, third day. Yom Ravi, fourth day. So do you hear how it switches from cardinal numbers to ordinal numbers? It should say not one day. It should say first day. Yom Rishon. Yom Sheni, first day, second day. It doesn't say that. It says one day, second day. And there's a lot of Torah on that. From the very beginning, the rabbis were like blowing their minds over that, okay? And the Medr says the following. It says, one day 
Because there's one day out of the year when the heavenly accuser doesn't point its finger at the Jewish people, which means on the deepest level, remember, human beings are created on the sixth day of creation. On the first day of creation, God was already creating Yom Kippur. God knew from the very beginning of the creation of the world that he was going to create human beings who were going to make mistakes. And he was already creating the agency to forgive us. That's a loving God. That's a God who loves us. So that's Yehuda. That's Yehuda who makes mistakes. Now I heard in the name of Rabbi Meir Fund an amazing teaching. He says, if you have, imagine like a, a clay pot, like a beautiful piece of ceramic, okay? And you drop it, and it smashes, and you put it back together again. It doesn't look as good as it did before it was broken. He says, in the eyes of heaven, if you have a pot, and you break it, and you put it back together, it looks even better than it did to begin with, in the eyes of heaven. And many years after I learned that teaching, and years after giving it over, I found out that there's this ancient Japanese art form. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it right now, which is they take broken pots and they heal the seams of brokenness with gold and silver filling. And they make a, a spiritual positive out of the brokenness. The beautification of putting something back together. As it says in the Talmud that if you return to God out of love, you turn all your past mistakes into mitzvahs. Because those mistakes led you to the person that you are today who is doing the right thing. So at the moment that you did the wrong thing, you didn't have permission to do the wrong thing. It was 100% the wrong thing. But if it led you to the person that you are today who's doing the right thing and who's cleaving to God out of love, then in retrospect, that mistake led you to be this beautiful person. So it's a mitzvah. So all of a sudden you take that broken seam and now it's like filled with gold and silver. It's shining. It says in the Gemara that a Baal Tshuva, there's an opinion that a Baal Tshuva is higher than a tzaddik who never made a mistake. And I heard this explanation that I really love. How could that be? So they say that a tzaddik who never made a mistake, he's got like, you know, mountains of diamonds, like all of his mitzvahs, mountains, mountains of diamonds. But someone who made mistakes and did mitzvahs and is now a very righteous person, returned to God out of love, all their mitzvahs are diamonds, but all their mistakes are rubies. <laughs> they turn those mistakes into rubies, which means... That's why a Balchuva, someone who returns, is higher than a tzaddik, because a tzaddik only has diamonds. But a Balchuva has diamonds and rubies. So, again, we talked about the idea of success. And we talked about it on an individual level, that it's fixing your soul. On a national level, it's bringing about and realizing this vision that God had from the very outset of creation.
So with that in mind, I want to just drill down into these two names, Yaakov and Yosef. As I told you, the commentators make a very big deal about the fact that their two names are said one right after the other. Ele todos Yaakov Yosef. So what I would like to suggest to you is that Yaakov and Yosef is the same name. And if you say to me, well, how can that be, since they're clearly not the same name, uh, I'll tell you the following. So let's look at each of the names. Yaakov is the letter Yud, and then Ekev, which means the heel. So the letter Yud stands for the Ein Sof. The Ein Sof is the highest emanation of light from the beginning of creation. And the Ein Sof goes all the way down through all the Olamas, all the worlds, until it actually reaches inside of you. And that's the Pintali Yid. That Yud manifests itself inside you. That's the spark of Kedusha, of holiness within you that can never be vanquished. Right? That's the Hanukkah light. So that's the Yud, and it goes all the way down. Ekev means heal. And the amazing thing is, is that if you, if you actually walk out a door, if you walk from one room to another, the last part of your body that leaves the room is your heel. Try it. It's an amazing thing. For that reason, the end of days is called Ikve de Meshiche. That means you hear the word Ekev in it from Yaakov. The heel of Mashiach means the last days. So Yaakov is Yud, the highest emanation of light, coming all the way down to the bottom. Now let's look at the name Yosef. The last three letters of Yosef, if you rearrange them, they spell the word Sof, which means end. Which means Yosef is Yud Sof. You understand? It's the same thing. <laughs> From the top all the way down to the end. Unbelievable. Now I want to finish that, that Pasuk. I want to finish that verse where it says, Ele todos Yaakov Yosef. Because you're going to see by the end of that verse, the whole world is falling apart. These are the chronicles of Jacob. Joseph at the, end, at the age of 17 years was a shepherd with his brothers by the flock. But he was a youth with the sons of Bila and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Yosef would bring evil reports about them to their father. So here you have the development of what we call sinas chinam, causeless hatred, between the brothers, between the, the DNA of the family of Israel. You see that the whole family of Israel, at its outset, is now riddled with hatred and breaking apart. Now, how did that happen exactly? And so what I, I want us to be sensitive to is how incredibly... <clears throat> hard a job Yaakov had, okay? Because what was supposed to happen? Esav was supposed to marry Leah, and Yaakov was supposed to marry Rachel. When Esav went off on his own trip, right? Now Yaakov has to marry Leah and Rachel. And so Yaakov has all of this responsibility to be the outside of the world and the inside of the world. Remember, Esav's whole thing was that he was a hunter and a warrior. 
okay, so that's all good. We, we, we need hunters and warriors, right? But that was supposed to be folded into the Kedusha, to the holiness of sanctifying the world. Instead, he became an opponent. He became a predator. So now, all of a sudden, Yaakov has to be the inside and the outside. He has to marry Leah, who represents the spiritual dimensions, the unknown aspects about this world. And he's got to marry Rachel. Now, we get to the next stage, where he now has to manage family relations between the children of Leah and the children of Rachel. These competing streams, they have to be regularly balanced throughout his life. A very difficult job, extremely difficult. And I just want to point our attention to the role Asav plays in all of this, because his name usually doesn't come up at this stage in the conversation. But the domino effects of the choices that he made are felt very much here. You know, we said, and the Balaturim brings this, an unbelievable gematria, which is that Esav is the gematria shalom. A very difficult gematria, which is why you, you hardly hear anyone say it, but it's from the Balaturim. Now, how does it work in terms of Esav? Because basically what happens is they share Shalom and Esav, share the letters Shin and Vav. But what's different is Esav has an Ayin and Shalom has a Lamed and a Mem. Lamed is 30, Mem is 40, that adds up to 70. And Ayin of Esav is 70. So that's, that's what happens. So what's so interesting is that Esav had goodness inside of him. And a manifestation of that is the fact that his head is in Moras HaMach in the cave of the patriarchs, with Adam and Chava and Avram and Sarah and Yitzchak and Rivka and Leah and Yaakov, right? And then you've got the head of Esav, which means that there was some good there. But you know what? Esav never got his head together with his heart. And so what's interesting is that that letter Ayin of Esav, when it becomes the word Shalom, it's the letters Mem and Lamed, which is Mal, which means to circumcise the heart. When Esav, which he wasn't able to do, is able to open up his heart so that his mind and his heart can be connected, then you have Shalom. So we see the breaking up of the family here. And, and now I want to say something that I think is deep. God has already told us what the end of the world is. The end of the world is peace. We're getting to that place. We're getting to that place. And, and I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, you know, it looks like we are making the same mistakes over and over again. He said, we're not. He said, we're making different mistakes. Okay, so to me that was very encouraging. At least we're not making the same mistakes. They may, he said they may look like the same mistakes. He said, but they're different mistakes. Okay. At least we're making progress. But you know something? Depending on our deeds, 
how we get to the end changes. Right? That's the thing. Depending on how much love we have for each other, depending how many mitzvahs we're doing, depending how much we're connecting with Hashem, depending on all these things, the road to the end changes. And the road to the end is in a constant flux how to get to the end. There have been different times in history where we've almost been at the end. And then the road lengthened. And other times the road shortened. Reb Shlomo said that after the 1967 war, if everyone moved to Israel, that would have been Mashiach. There have been moments, there have been moments, even within our basic lifetime, where we've tasted the end. But how we get to the end keeps on changing. And that's what I want to say the difference between the name Yaakov and Yosef is. The end with Yaakov is called Ekev. The end, same end, but now with Yosef is called Sof. In other words, they're different. It's a, it's a morphing in terms of the energy of the world, what the pathway of the end, how to get to the end now. Because with Yosef, remember in that Pasuk, all of a sudden, there's hate between family members. Now we're going to have to take a new pathway to get to the end. Now after I thought about that, I said, well, what if you take the gematria of the word sof and the gematria of the word ekev, what number do you get? In other words, what's the difference between these two ends? And I was shocked that the the number was 26. 26 is the gematria of God's holiest name, Yudke Vavke. And what I, the conclusion I draw from that is that every pathway is with God because all that exists is God. And that when we begin to see the God in others, we're going to be able to get to the end. Now, I'll say one, one last thing which is, it really feels like Yaakov should have gotten to the end, right? Because he conquers Lovin. Remember, Kabbalistically, Lovin is the reincarnation of the snake from the Garden of Eden. He, he conquers Lovin. He conquers Asaph. Like, what else, what else do you need to do in life, right? He... he he defeats an angel. Like, what else do you need to do? So, so after he manages to appease Asaph, we have what I think is one of the greatest moments in human history of, of diplomacy. Because, remember, it says, Asaph kissed Yaakov. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who's the one who says that the hatred between Yaakov and Esav is fixed into the fabric of reality and will never go away until Mashiach comes, the person who said that thought is the person who says the kiss that Esav gave Yaakov was a real kiss. <laughs> In other words, there's another opinion that he wanted to bite his jugular vein and kill him. But the one who says the hatred between them will never end till Mashiach 
He's the one who says that, no, 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 it was actually a kiss of affection. Which is amazing that that, that opinion goes with that person, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Okay, so now Yaakov has accomplished something so great. He's made peace with his brother. His brother has actually kissed him with affection, according to this opinion. Now Yaakov says, you know what, I'm going to take my soldiers and we'll go together. (laughs) Oh, Esav says to Yaakov, I'm going to take my soldiers and I'm going to, we'll all go together right now. Which is like, from Yaakov's point of view, all of a sudden, like, the, the alarms are flashing. He's like, whoa, wait a second. We're about to take a big step backwards. I'm about to be essentially conquered and imprisoned by my brother. Like, this is, like, really bad, what's about to happen. Now, I can't make him mad, because I just did this, inc- I just wrestled an angel from heaven in order to make peace with him. How am I going to get out of this without rejecting him and insulting him? And Yaakov says these words. Esav says to him, travel on and let us go. I will proceed alongside you. Wow, what's contained in that offer? That's from Esav. Yaakov says back to him, but he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and the nursing flocks and cattle are upon me. If they will be driven hard for a single day, then all the flocks will die. Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will make my way at my slow pace according to the gate of the drove before me and the gate of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Okay, so Seir represents the end of days. Right? We're talking about the end of days right now. Yud Ekev and Yud Sof. Yaakov says to Esav, I'll meet you at the end of days. And by the way, we say that line, what it really means. Every day after we say, talk about crossing the, the Red Sea, uh, right before Yishtabach in the davening, we say the fo- following words. Um, the saviors will ascend Mount Sion to judge Esav's mountain and the kingdom will be Hashem's. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a Pasuk from Ovadia. And, and what it's talking about is at the end of days when Esav will be judged and conquered. Okay, now listen to this. We're getting toward the end here. Listen to this. The Balaturim says this phrase that I'll meet you at Har Seir. It's actually Seira in Hebrew. Okay? I'll meet you at this mountain, Esav. By the way, that God gave Esav that mountain. That, that's part of Esav's divine inheritance. Okay? So if you take the last four words of that, I'll meet you at Har Seira and you take the last letter of those last four words, which is really interesting because we're talking about the end of days. So look how great God is. Look what a magnificent artist God is. Since we're talking about the end of days, this verse, 
He's taking the last four words and the last four letters of the last four words because we're talking about the end of days. Isn't that awesome? Every aspect of the methodology of learning Torah is awesome. So now listen to the last letters. Avo is Aleph, El is Lamed, Adoni is Yud, Seira is He. What that spells is Eliyah. Now Eliyah is the same name as Eliyahu, as in Eliyahu Hanavi, meaning to say Eliyahu is the one who announces the arrival of Mashiach. So even Eliyahu's name in the end of days is being referred to right here. But now you see something very interesting, and we'll conclude with this. Why not just call him Eliyahu? That's the name that everybody knows him by. Why are you calling him Eliyah? So there are five times in Tanakh where Eliyahu is spelled without above, and there are five times in Tanakh when Yaakov is spelled with above. And the rabbis teach that Yaakov has Eliyahu's vavs. And Yaakov is holding on to Eliyahu's vav as collateral to make sure that he's going to come back to announce Mashiach. Now, what's a vav? A vav is a connection. It's a connection between us and the above, right? When you have the name Yudke Vavke, that vav stands for that divine connection between this dimension and the higher worlds. And the vav means a connection between each other as well. It's our relationship with the divine and it's our relationship with each other. That's what the vav is. Now, isn't it interesting that the letter vav is missing from that name, which is talking about the arrival of Mashiach and everything like that. Because what did I tell you? Yo- Yosef and Yaakov are the same name. Yud Ekev, Yud Sof. How we get to the end keeps on changing. Our bridge to the end is the letter Vav. That's what's missing. Do you know why that's what's missing? Because that's what's in play right now. How are we going to connect to the, to, the, to the divine? How are we going to connect to Hashem? How are we going to connect to each other? That's what's in play. And when we get the vav right, when we get this connection right to above and to each other, that is going to complete all of creation. God should bless us that we should see it with our own eyes. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them. <laughs>